good to have you back. So getting into this series, and, and it kind of, it, it goes in line with looking at history, okay? So established is the name of the series, and first, the scripture that is the, the theme, the main piece that we pull from for this entire series is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And it says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay, so this is the basis of where we get the name of the series, Established. So to make it very clear, it is something that God does. Okay, something that God does. He does a supernatural work in our life. To establish in this context that we're talking about means this, to provide a strong base for practice or belief. To be established in our faith. Okay, so we're unwavering. We're not like figuring things out. It's like, this is who we are. This is who I am. This is who God is. This is who I am in God. You know, so this is the idea of being established. Matthew Henry says this, and I believe we have some slides. Elaine is going to do her best. I, I didn't put them in order, so don't get mad at her if she's late. So <laughs> it's my fault. So Matthew Henry says this, the perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling of good people in grace and their perseverance therein is so difficult a work that only the God of all grace can accomplish it. And therefore, he is earnestly to be sought unto by continual prayer and dependence upon his promises. So this is Matthew Henry talking about the establishment of a person. He's saying it's so difficult a work that only the God of all grace can accomplish it. So when we find ourselves established, we can be confident that it wasn't us. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't a church. It was God that established us. So even the little faith we have, you know, that we cling to, we can, we can rest in the hope that, man, God did that. God gave that little piece to me. So that's what Matthew Henry's teaching us, right? So if we look at Scripture, we'll see that God established certain things. In Genesis 2, we see marriage and the union of man and woman, a woman in holy covenant before God. That's the establishment of marriage. Okay? And then in Exodus 20, God establishes the Ten Commandments. Throughout Scripture, you find God establishing His presence and His law on the land. God establishes that Jesus is His Son in Matthew 3. There's establishment, established things that happen that God did, okay? So in the book of Acts, we read about the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, we're going to read 1 through 4 initially. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we read about this, this event. It was a crazy, weird unique, different, whatever word you want to call it, it was abnormal. It was not normal, okay? It was something that was so out of the ordinary that people around them that weren't even in the meeting, they were like, what's going on? They went over there and wanted to see. 
So it was abnormal. So the Holy Spirit moves, and then Peter, God moves, right? So it's all these people. So imagine like this. We make such a, a crazy noise that all of these houses, all of these apartments around start coming in, and they're like, hey, what's going on in this house? You know, what's going on in this building? They start coming to look. They're like, you know, peeking their head in. What's going on in this place? That's, that's what was going on in this room. They were all filled with the Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. People were hearing their original tongues, like their original language. So imagine we, we uh, you know, a Nigerian guy comes in. And he's like, hey, somebody's speaking my language. That's what was going on. And we're all like, man, no, we don't even know. What, like, what is that? You know, imagine somebody comes in, like an Indian guy, like somebody's speaking Punjabi. Like, what? <laughs> like, who speaks Punjabi? Nobody. And so this is what was happening. God was doing such a miraculous thing that people began to come in. They were like, what is going on? I hear my language being spoken. And it was, it was an interesting study that one guy did. He said, there was specific characteristics of languages that were spoken that were so unique to a location that people would only recognize their specific location. So it would be like this, you know, in Texas or, or, or California, California speak much better than Texans. Okay, be happy about that. <laughs> we do. All right. So I'm not hating on Texas. I'm just telling you the truth. They say y'all. They, you know, y'all. You know, all y'all. And I, I heard one comedian say they say mayonnaise. And I was like, mayonnaise? And he was like, yeah, they say like, mayonnaise fixing to go in. And I was like, oh man, they are fixing to get ready to go. Mayonnaise fixing to go in. Okay, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because I've heard that before. So, so what happens is it's, it's a dialect or it's a slang or it's like a, it's like a word that's specific to a, a location. So these people were hearing people speak their language with their accent and their dialect from their location. So it was such a miraculous thing that everybody started coming around. And it was not one race, one group, one, it was a bunch of different things. Like it was diversity. And the Holy Spirit moves in this. And then what happens is all these people come around and Peter gets up and he starts preaching to the people. He starts preaching to the people and they all come around and God moved in such a powerful way that those not in the room came to see what was going on. Peter starts preaching and then he starts preaching in verse 37. Okay, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is what he said. Or this is what it says. That's, this is what's happening. When they heard, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So Peter gets up and he preaches. And he tells them, you guys need to change. Things need to change in your life. And then they respond with, how? What do we do from here? So then Peter goes further. And, and I, I like to see it like this. When the Holy Spirit moves, you always see a call to action. There is never just a movement of the Holy Spirit. And it's just like, oh, okay, let's go get some donuts. The Holy Spirit moves and people change. So I'm very careful with the word revival. I'm very careful with the word outpouring or God moved. If God moves, people change. So we have to be careful with using those terms. Okay. So when the Holy Spirit moves, you always see a call to action. The men responded to Peter's sermon. What shall we do? Okay. Verse 38. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he teaches them, talks to them, says, repent. That's the first thing he says. And that is the first place that we encounter 
true surrender to who God is. We repent. Okay? So then we go further. So then the Holy Spirit moves and people respond with an intentional action. When God moves in your life, it's so powerful that you have to respond. That's the truth. When God moves, you have to respond. Because it's like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> it's not normal. It's weird. It's like, that was odd. That was so different. What is going on? He moves and, and then people respond with an intentional action. And when God moves, it's powerful and it's exciting. But there was a follow-up to this movement. Okay, When the initial thing happened, it was just so like, whoa, what is going on? People were excited. They were blown away. Like, oh my gosh, look at this. Do you hear this? They're talking to each other. But there was a follow-up to this movement. They changed their lifestyle and they changed how they lived and interacted. See, again, when God moves, people change. They changed their lifestyle and they changed how they lived and interacted. In verse 42, we read this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. To the, <coughs> excuse me. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see there was, there was a move of God. And then people were changed. You know, I always, I'm always, okay, so because I was a server at a restaurant, I always attack, if we act demanding at restaurants, there's a scripture right here, he says, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. <laughs> That's not, you know, this is cold, take it back, you know? Okay, Karen, you know? It's not, it's not, they received it with glad and generous hearts. They're like, man, this is cold, praise God, I got to eat today, you know? That's how they were, they just were changed. And, and we look at this and we see that people were changed by what God did. And I could tell you this, and we got four, I'm going to show this one up here. If she, don't worry, it's there. Okay. An established move of God looks like this. God moves. God gives instruction. People respond. People change. It's that simple. God moves. God gives instruction. People respond people change. I want to share with you now some history of what God established in the city of Los Angeles. And it's powerful, but to start here, we have to actually look at an event in Europe. Okay? In 1904, there was what was called the Welsh Revival in Wales. Okay? It was the largest Christian revival in Wales during the 20th century. It was one of the most dramatic in terms of its effect on the population and triggered revivals in several other countries. When we say revival, we say that people were repenting. They were falling under the presence of God, walking down the street and saying like, man, like, I'm a sinner, I need to repent. No one preaching at them, no one telling, no one giving them a flyer and inviting them to church. God was moving in a whole area. There's a testimony of this guy. He, he gives an account 
uh, in a, from an area, it's Ro, but it's spelled R-H-O-S in Wales. It was a little village, but it was the biggest one in the whole area. And there's a testimony of this guy, and he says this, and this is also there, and you can read along once we get it up. The heavens was rent, and the spirit was there. It was the spirit life, and the people enjoyed it. It was life in the true meaning, deep spiritual experience, and people enjoyed life. The proof of it was this. You were as happy in the pit as you were at home or in the church. It was one thing. It was life, enjoying God, enjoying the presence of the Lord and the spirit of Jesus Christ. The people, they knew that the Lord Jesus was in their life. It was everything. They were enjoying God. They were enjoying the life that was life indeed. This was a guy who was in the Welsh revival. And he's telling, and I love that little part right there. And he says, from the pit, you were as happy in the pit as you were in the home or at the church. And, and the reality is when God moves in your life, everything changes. I remember the testimony of Billy Hall, who says he was in prison and gave his life to God. And he woke up in a prison cell. He said, freer than people that were out of prison. He had life sentences uh, I think it was like two or three, right? It was some, something crazy. He had like two or three life sentences. Should never get out of prison. And he said, God spoke to him and said, I'm going to get you out so you can testify of my goodness. He was released. <laughs> he's a, he's a, a pastor and missionary still to this day. What I'm saying is that there's this moment that when God moves in your life, it's such a deep spiritual experience that everything changes. During the same revival, there were supernatural healings and events that left people baffled. Uh, there was one that I read, I was reading through, and I'm telling you, there's so much in the recorded history of it that I was like, oh my gosh, how do you take out pieces of this? But there was one event that I was reading, and it was, it was very interesting. It says that this guy was walking suddenly at around 8.20 p.m. I saw what appeared to be a ball of fire above the roof of the chapel. It came from nowhere and sprang into brilliance and did not move. This guy's walking and he sees the chapel and he sees this, this like fire over the chapel. And I thought of uh, a revival that happened in Maywood. And uh, my grandparents were there, right? You were there for this event. That someone from the neighborhood called the fire department. They said, this church is on fire. There's people in there. There's smoke. We can see the flames. So the fire department gets there, and as I understand it, they saw it too because they broke in and ran in with their hose. And when they went in, there was no fire. There was nothing going on. What happened was they asked, you know, what, where's the fire? And they said, well, no, there is no fire. God's just moving. And the recognition of like these moments of like, what the heck is that, you know? That for me is, is not revival per se, but it is a, a something that can testify or say, God's doing something. Just like they spoke in tongues. God was doing something. Pastors involved in the Welsh revival regularly spoke of four keys to revival. Four keys to revival. They said this, confess all known sin to God. Receiving forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remove anything from your life that you are in doubt or feel unsure about. 
be totally yielded and obedient to the Holy Spirit. Publicly confess the Lord Jesus Christ and share the gospel with your neighbors. This is, this is what the Welsh pastors that were involved in the revival said. These four things is what was happening during the revival and just before the revival. We saw it break out. So there was this massive move of God. God moved. He gave instruction. And, and the theme of the message that sparked the revival was deepened loyalty to Christ. They didn't talk about make sure you go to this event, be part of this group. They said deepen your loyalty to Christ. That was the theme of every single pastor, every single church that was involved in that revival. People responded, people changed. It was such a powerful move of God that it crossed the pond, they say. So it came over to America. There was a pastor named Joseph Smale who had a church here in the Los Angeles area. I believe it was Pasadena specifically. It was First Baptist Church in Pasadena. Joseph Smale attended a service in Wales during the revival that was happening and was stirred in his spirit from what he saw. He, he was like, look what God's doing. God, can you do this in Los Angeles? He started this prayer and he, started, he goes back to L.A. And in 1905, just before his return to Los Angeles, there had been a, in May 1905, just days before Smale's return, he's praying, saying, Lord, let there be revival in Los Angeles. Just days before his return, an outbreak of the Holy Spirit in Pasadena happened in a small Methodist church that had 200 people convert and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. So there was an outbreak of the Holy Spirit moving before he even got back. And then he gets back and revival starts to break out in his congregation. And he just starts to see God move in such a way that he has never seen it happen in Southern California. So he gets back and he writes to a pastor in Wales. And this is in September of 1905. And this is what he says. Joseph Smale to Reverend E. Williams. It says, while I was recounting the Lord's doing in your country... The Holy Ghost fell upon the people and fully 200 of them came out of their seats and wept in penitence before the Lord. That is, they repented before the Lord. They got out of their seats and just repented. This was the first Sunday morning after I returned home and similar scenes have greeted us every now and again in our meetings. This is the eighth week of special gatherings for prayer. We are coming together every day in the afternoon and evening meeting with glorious results principally in sanctification of the lives of believers. Conversions are not yet as very numerous, but we are looking for a great awakening. The glory of the Lord has indeed settled among us, and people from all over Southern California are coming and feeling the power divine. May I ask of you in your church an interest in the Lord's work here. Will you pray for us and that the Lord will grant us to see greater things for his glory. So he, he prays this prayer to say, I saw this revival in Wales. Something's happening in L.A. Will you pray for us that God does even more? A quote from the publication The Economist. The Economist says this, L.A.'s most successful export is not Hollywood, but Pentecostalism. In Los Angeles, California, there was the, it, was, it is the birthplace of a worldwide revival. 
See, God established his presence in Southern California. Okay? We walk in his presence because of those that have prayed before us, walked before us, fasted before us. Check this out. People prayed for me before I was born. People prayed for you before you were born. That, that God would touch you. That God would work in your life. That he would save you. They didn't even know you. People probably came in this room and laid hands on the walls and said, Lord, we pray that uh, people would get saved and come to know you and learn about you in this room. And this is the reality of what we walk through in L.A. People came before us. In 1906, this was September 1905, this was uh, uh, Smale writing a letter to Reverend E. Williams in Wales, and he writes this, Will you pray for us that the Lord will grant us to see greater things for his glory? In 1906, there was a massive move of God in Los Angeles. It is now known as the Azusa Street Revival. Okay, the Azusa Street Revival was a historic series of revival meetings that took place in L.A. Okay, it was led by William J. Seymour, an African-American preacher. The revival began on April 9th, 1906, and continued until 1915. Okay, let me give you some context here. And I'm a geek. This is exciting to me. So if you're bored, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me give you some sort of historical context here. Segregation was heavily enforced. If you were black, you could not be with anybody that was white, even in church. It was segregation. Even in church, it was enforced. Okay? There was, it was an era in which Jim Crow law was in full effect. Racism was not only practiced, but was expected. There was a huge uh, uh, San Francisco earthquake, a 7.9 that happened in April of 1906. And here in Los Angeles, God begins to move in a little meeting in downtown. At the first meeting that they had, there were 15 people. Okay, 15 people. Five of them were kids. And they began to pray. And God began to move. And there's an account of it on the night of April 9th, 1906. Seymour and seven men were waiting on God on Bonnie Bray Street when suddenly, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor and the other seven men began to speak in tongues and shout out loud, praising God. The news quickly spread. The city was stirred. Crowds gathered. Services were moved outside to accommodate the crowds who came from all around. People fell down as they approached. They didn't even make it into the building. They fell down when they were walking up to the building. And attributed to God, people were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The sick were healed. Miracles happened. Today, the revival is considered by historians to be the primary catalyst for the spread of Pentecostalism in the 20th century. To date, in the 21st century, estimates of worldwide Pentecostal membership range from 115 million to 400 million. So you can see God did something. With this little group that was meeting in downtown L.A., ten adults, five kids. And they prayed. And, and God moved. Yes. And we can see God established a community of believers. They went from meeting in a small house in which the house got so packed that the porch eventually collapsed. And they said, we, we have to find another meeting place. So they moved it to a barn that a lady said, I have an empty barn. You can have a church in there. And they're like, okay, let's go meet in the barn. And the barn was on Azusa Street. And that's the Azusa Street Revival. If you go in downtown LA, there's a plaque 
Because it was such a, it impacted the city in such a way, it's historical. It's, his, it's literally on the history books for Los Angeles. Okay? If you go to downtown LA, there's a plaque, because the building's gone. There's a plaque that says the site of the Azusa Street Revival. And when I'm sitting, and I'm looking at this and reading about this, just like, wow, man, this is insane. But what happens is God moves, God gives instruction, people respond, people change. This revival crossed over cultural and socioeconomic boundaries. There's record and pictures of black men and white men and Latinos and Asian worshiping God together in what was supposed to be a segregated community. Amen. All led by a black preacher. The letter I read to you was from Joseph Smale, was written after his trip to Wales, but the reason he went to Wales was not a good one. See, what happened was Joseph Smale was going through the hardest season of his life. He, he tried to resign as a pastor. He tried to resign at his church. He said to the board, I can't do this anymore. I need to resign. And the board said to him, no, take a vacation. So they sent him to Wales. And that's where he encountered this revival. And he came back saying, God, give us this revival. He carried this revival and his spirit back with him after going through one of the ugliest seasons of his life. If I read to you all the details, you would trip out. Because <laughs> I read it and I was like, oh my gosh. Hardest season of his life. And he tries to resign because he's like just lost. He's like, Lord, I can't do this anymore. And then he goes and he sees this move of God start to happen. We read about William Seymour, who, who led the, the Pentecostal movement. He was a black pastor who started preaching. He went to Bible college by sitting outside and listening through the door because he wasn't allowed in. Because he was black. And that's how he learned how to preach. He learned how to put a sermon together. What the Bible says, exegesis, right? Hermeneutics, all the homiletics, all the areas of, of learning and establishing his position as a pastor. He had to learn by sitting on a chair outside of the room because he couldn't be in with the other white people. They mocked him that he would never do anything for God. Why are you here? You're, you're a black preacher. God's not going to use you. And, and talking about all this stuff, we read about Seymour and we read about Smale and they took part in this suffering before they saw a movement. Yeah. See, the problem is this. We want God to move without paying any cost. We want God to say, Lord, we need this revive. We need this. We, oh, man, we need this in our home. You haven't even paid any sort of cost. And you want Jesus to just do something for you because you want it? It's kind of like this thing where it's, it's just like, man, God, this is supposed to be good. I'm supposed to be healthy and wealthy by now. <laughs> right? When we come to church, we're Christians, you know, health and wealth, that's what we're supposed to be. When the reality is this, man, God moves and he establishes something. What does the scripture say at the beginning? After you have suffered a little while. The problem is this, some of us never make it through the suffering. We give up. It's too hard. It's difficult. I don't want to do this. I want it done my way. Uh, one of the guys that was here with us, Pastor Jonathan Pena, his, um, his brother-in-law that was here, 
He said, you know what, man? I don't know. I don't know if this means anything for you. But during worship, it was like I, I had this picture, this vision of a guy fighting through the jungle. And, and he's like trying to cut things down and get to the end. And he says, and then I kind of like went over and I saw where he was. And he was right at the edge, but he was starting to give up. And, and he was right at the edge, but he was starting to give up. And he said, I don't know if that means anything for you. And I was like, I don't think for me. Because <laughs> I've, I've fought that before. I know what that is. But I think there are some of us that forget it is a fight, it is a suffering, it is an ability to stay strong, to say, Lord, I'm going to keep going until I see that you're there with us. So the scripture, when he says, like, you know, would you pray that God would do greater things in Los Angeles? Joseph Smale went and visited the Azusa Street Revival at its peak and said, Lord, this is what we pray for. In 1905, right? This all happens. 1906, Azusa Street Revival. God moves. God gives instruction. People respond. People change. This revival, like I said, crossed over so many boundaries. Suffering is not for the celebration. Meaning like this. Sometimes we look at it as like, I'm going to suffer because I'm going to get to celebrate. Suffering is not for the celebration. Suffering is to turn you to our Father in heaven. Let me say it like this. I don't have all the answers. Pastor Mancha doesn't have all the answers. Okay? Your favorite TikTok person doesn't have all the answers. Your favorite YouTube preacher doesn't have all the answers. Okay? The answers are not going to be found there in your suffering. The answer is going to be found when you turn to the Father in heaven so that you would be established in him. Because any, anything else is, is a false pretense. It's, it's fake. It's, it's not rock solid. To be established in who the Father is and Father in heaven, you are really established so that nothing else could ever please you. C.S. Lewis writes about, and he says this, he says, the Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The one who cannot be satisfied in anything else finds satisfaction in God. Most of our lives were wrapped up in the pursuit of being satisfied in what we achieve whether it be academic, whether it be in our accomplishments of what we buy, our career, we, we pursue these things and you find at the end, it doesn't satisfy me because our, our nature of who we are is satisfied in God. Even when we read about the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, this was after the crucifixion. Jesus died on the cross and then there was a revival. Suffering preceded the revival. To be established is not about a picture of success that the world paints. Suffering is not for your destruction. That's the thing. If I can get you to grab anything today, suffering is not for your destruction. It's not. It's not because God's mad at you. It's not because he's angry at you. 
It's not because you did something wrong. Suffering is not for your destruction. It's that you would lean on nothing else but God. Suffering will precede revival. Suffering will precede revival. Revival is to establish his presence and his will. And we read that, we see that in the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, uh, you know, I drove by the Dream Center. Anybody ever heard of that? Los Angeles Dream Center? Okay, so it's, it's this large old hospital building that a church bought. And they use it that they would help families and people and disciple them, train them, give them uh, like equipping to get a job. They help them in so many ways, and you can see it from the freeway. And the Azusa Street Revival birthed that. There are hospitals that were built from churches that started during the Azusa Street Revival. The city of Los Angeles reaped some things from the Azusa Street Revival. Okay, suffering will precede revival. Revival is to establish his presence and his will. God moves. God gives instruction. People respond. People change. Let's stand. I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Monte right now, but I want to read this to you again. And this is our whole series. This is what it's about. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I want you to just think about that. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you.